Well, good morning, friends. Glad to see you today. Good morning. We're here. Uh, the fourth week, our final week in our study, our series on Leviticus. And I'm sure for some of you, it couldn't come soon enough. No, 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 I'm just kidding. I, I've actually been quite impressed. I know uh, Jimmy and I, we had a conversation just a couple weeks ago of just the expectations that we had going into this teaching of like, well, I don't know, this seems like, is this a good idea? Is this even going to work? And, and the idea of uh, spending time in the darkest, most challenging book of Scripture during the month of March, which is not always uh, lovely and full of beauty and all of those great things. But, but we've been surprised, um, actually, and, I, and I, based on conversations that I've had with a number of you, that there's been a surprise as well, that there's actually some good stuff in this, this text uh, a book that people would just kind of run out of gas once they get into you know, their, their yearly Bible plan and once they get Genesis and then Exodus and once Leviticus hits, it's like, all right, I'm going to just skip this and then get into something else. But as we get in, um, what I'm realizing is there's still plenty of water in the sponge to wring out as far as content, as far as insight, as far as depth. So, so uh, we're just scratching the surface here with these four weeks, but we'll be wrapping it up today. And I'm just thankful for the, the opportunity to be able to walk with, uh, with you through this. So we want to get into the last week. And uh, last, week we, last, last week we talked about purity, which was great. All of our uh, skin diseases and uh, discharges and all the fun stuff. Today we're talking about sin. <laughs> yes, my sentiments exactly. But what we want to talk about is this, uh, this crescendo of the book. And how the center of the center of the center of God's heart, of God's teaching in the first five books of the Old Testament, is to close the gap between himself and his people. We, we see this so clearly in the teaching in Leviticus. And it's an opportunity for us to, to see that in a new and different way. So, so I wanna, what I want to do is, is talk about this crescendo of the book, which is known as Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. And it is the most holy day in the Jewish calendar. All days lead to this day for the, for the Jew. And incidentally, we get a whole uh, understanding and layout of the Jewish calendar in the book of Leviticus. We see it in the, near the end, uh, starting in chapter 23. We see all of the feasts and all of the instructions to party and all of the instructions to celebrate and all the instructions on how to, to rhythm and set your life in a way that uh, keeps you in constant reminder of the goodness of God. The concept of Sabbath is introduced in these last few chapters of Leviticus. Yom Kippur, the, the, uh, the, the, yearly, uh, the yearly time of, of uh, atonement and dealing with sin. We also find uh, this, this uh, seven of sevens where on the seventh year you're to let the land lay fallow as a chance for even, even the, the soil to gain rest and to replenish itself. And the ultimate, the Sabbath of all Sabbaths in the Jubilee, which at the end of the seventh, uh, the end of the seventh year of the seventh, so the 49th, going into the 50th year, this year of Jubilee where all debts are paid. Imagine. If you can with me, your credit card balance, your mortgage, the debts that are outstanding, and all of a sudden it comes 50 years, it all gets set back to zero. Hallelujah. Some are more happy about this than others, I notice. I can see the look on your face. I can tell where you're at. But, but that's all good. 
This, this idea of rest, this idea of Sabbath, this idea of jubilee, this idea of celebration is all there in the rhythm of God's people. So we're going to get as deep in, as we can in the, in the short time that we have this morning. But one way, uh, one thing that I want to introduce us to is this literary concept that was very common in the Old Testament. Old Testament writing, we see it throughout Scripture. And even in, in Eastern, uh, Eastern literature, you see this, this literary technique that, that's, um, that helps bring attention and focus and emphasis. So I've enjoyed learning about this from a number of Old Testament scholars, um, and it's called the chiasm, or the chiastic structure. And it's a device that's, that's kind of like poetry, but it's filled with, with symmetry, and, and, and in my opinion, it's actually quite beautiful. And one way to start to understand it is by looking at um, uh, a palindrome. If you know that, what a palindrome is, it's basically it's a word that's spelt the same uh, frontwards and backwards, right? So the one that comes to mind is wow. Like wow would be one. If it's frontwards or backwards, it's still spelt the same. Or kayak or race car or defied. Uh, it's the same when you read it frontwards and the same as you read it backwards. So we take that idea, that concept, and we just turn it up a few notches and don't just apply it to a single word but we apply it to um, a, a list or a string of ideas or concepts or a paragraph. We, we, we draw that up, and the intention is two things. One is to help with memorization. Uh, the Jewish culture was primarily, all uh, ancient cultures were primarily oral. They would speak all of these things. It was, it was very common that... Um, a Jewish boy would have the entire Torah committed to memory, the first five books of the Bible. You need some, some tricks to help you remember that. And the chiasm was one that would actually help to, 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 help, uh, to help with memorization. Um, a simple example of, of one in Scripture in the New Testament would be from Mark 2, 27. It says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So if you think of it in like a rhyming couplet, you'll see like the A-B-B-A. So A would be Sabbath, right? Sabbath at the end, Sabbath at the beginning. And then man, you've got the B-B. So you've got, the, you've got these uh, mirroring uh, ideas and concepts. It's almost as if the phrase is folded upon itself. And the first reason that this would be in is for memorization, as I said. The second reason why it's helpful is that it would be a, a mechanism for the scholars or, or the, the writers of the text to hide something that's worthy of discovery. So it's almost like a treasure hunt where they would put something that's, that's particularly important and of value. They would bury it in the center of these uh, chiasms. Typically, you'd find uh, the crux or the, the, the kind of hidden treasure that's buried in plain sight. So I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, the story in, uh, in Genesis, the Tower of Babel, or Babel, depending on your, uh, your pronunciation, you can see symmetry in the story. It's like a staircase that goes up, has a focal point, and then goes back down on the other side. So if we can show that slide that breaks it down. I think we've got it. And if we're not, you're going to use your imagination if you know the story. 
Um, so it starts with, uh, the Lord came down. Oh, actually, I do need that slide because I don't have it here. Yes. All right. So you see now it's a little complicated. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, F, E, D, C, B, A. So this now is kind of the whole story. And if you look at the A's, they line up. This is the beginning of the story and the end. The whole earth had one language. And the end of the story is the language of all the earth. And then there, and then from there in the B's, verse 2 and verse 8, they line up. C, one another. Uh, and then the C at the, uh, at the bottom there on verse 7, one another's language. Come, let us make bricks. Come, let us confuse. Let us build for ourselves, which the children of man had built, a city and a tower, the city and the tower, and then the crescendo, the middle, is the Lord came down, is the middle, is the centerpiece, it's the crux, it's where the, it's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. So when we see these literary devices, it's actually an opportunity for us or an invitation for us to say, pay attention, pay close attention to what's at the center of this, this chiasm. There's something that, that is, is an integral in us getting an idea of what's happening. This is saying, pay close attention to what's at the center. And there's varying degrees of complexity and detail. And sometimes in scripture, you'll find that there are chiasms within chiasms within chiasms which is uh, extra important for us to pay attention to. We see in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, this is the, the sacred text for the Jew uh, that uh, would be read every year. Every year, uh, the, the, the Israelite community would read, the, read these, four, or these five books from beginning to end, starting in Genesis and ending in Deuteronomy. And we see a similar pattern in this chiasm. So we see Genesis and Deuteronomy are, are the bookends of these five books that uh, Genesis talking about beginnings and Deuteronomy kind of going through, re retelling the story again, but in the context of what it is for the entire world as how Israel uh, connects in that way. And then we, we go in a level from Exodus uh, is speaking directly to the Jewish people. It's a national focus. And then Numbers as well is a book about statistics telling more of the story of, the, of the, uh, the Israelite people, and it's on a national level. And then as we get to the middle, the crux of Torah, we find Leviticus. It's speaking not just to the nation, but a specific tribe within the nation. We see an example of a chiasm. This is a, an invitation for us to say, okay, there's something, there's something here for us. We may need to pay close attention. The center of Torah but wait, there's more. We go down another level. If we, if we look at the book of, of Leviticus itself, you'll see it's structured very similarly. And we see in the first seven chapters, this is part of the reason why we've, we've followed this pattern in the way that we've been teaching over the past four weeks. The first seven chapters and the last few chapters, they, they bookend in the sense that the first is talking about the ritual, uh, ritual sacrifices and the end is talking about the ritual calendar. The second section is talking about the ordination of the priests. And then the corresponding piece, second from the back, chapters 21 to 22, is talking about the qualifications of the priests. You see how the, this rhythm is happening. You see it's building towards something. 
And last week we talked about the ceremonial purity in chapters 11 to 15. On the other end of that, you see moral purity talked about in chapters 18 to 20. And all of it coming to the, the crux or the crescendo or the, the apex or the center of this chiasm in the day of atonement. Pay attention is what this is saying. Where we reach and we get to the center of the center of the center of God's teaching, of his instruction in the Old Testament. And all of it builds up to this one day, the day of atonement. and deals with the biggest question. This is the question that the day of atonement is asking. It's asking how a holy God, how a perfect, holy, we've learned earlier he's sometimes dangerous, but good God can close the gap between sinful and messy people. So we'll read in uh, chapter 16, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. Yeah, right away, you know, uh, this is serious business. Verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. So up until this point, we've, we've talked about the, the, the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, only in the sense of you've got the outer court, which is where the sacrifices would happen. They're, they're kind of like concentric circles, but more like uh, concentric uh, rectangles, where you've got the outer court where sacrifices would happen, and then inside that you've got the, the holy place. And then within the holy place, you've got the most holy place, the holy of holies, behind the curtain, the place where God is instructing Moses. You can't just walk into this space whenever you feel like it. This is, this is the power and the presence of God. This is the, the center of the center of the center of God's presence. And as dangerous as it is, I, I, I love the fact that the, the name of the the, the, the seat, the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence actually, the, the, the concentrated presence of God is called the mercy seat. I love that. I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are the sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. So he brings uh, four animals. He's asked to bring four animals to this place. A young bull uh, for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering and two goats. He bathes himself and he puts on a different set of clothing. Before he was to put on this ornate, beautiful breastplate with uh, fancy jewels and stones on it and he had his, his turban done up in a way that was, was really fancy. But for this day, for this most holy day, God instructs him to come in a very simple yet sacred and humble way. You're going into the most holy place and it doesn't need all of the extra thing. That's, that's for out. But when, when you and I do the work, the high priest and God are doing the work, it's got to be simple. So the bull, uh, the bull is sacrificed for the high priest and his family. And also a censer is filled with coal and incense 
which would have created a thick, dense smoke in the most holy place. And some scholars believe that this may have been actually a kind of shield uh, that would be a protection for the, for the high priest, almost like, um, like a veil or a way of putting on really thick sunglasses if you're trying to look directly into the sun. That just the presence of God alone was so powerful it would have been over, uh, overwhelming. So he walks into smoke. There's sacrifices, there's blood being shed, there's a thick smell in the air. There's all of this spectacle. The, 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 the people, the nation had been waiting in anticipation all year for this, this time. They would have been. The priest is instructed to move from the purification of himself and his family to the people. Purification of the people and then to the space itself. Both ceremonial impurity, but then also the corruption, moral corruption and failure. And all of the symbolism that we see here is just completely off the charts. We see blood and we see smoke. There's incense. And this one priest, I'm sure trembling in his boots, stands as a single representative for all of the people. He stands there as a representative for all of the nation in place of them, in presence of God. And it's not done yet. But wait, there's more. The two goats. What's the, <laughs> the two goats, and we learn about a, uh, a divine game of dice where God says you need to cast lots and decide which goat is going to get slaughtered and which one is not. One goat is slaughtered. Here, more symbolism. These, these pictures may start to sound familiar to you if they're not already. But one is slaughtered, an innocent life, sacrificed, on behalf of others. This goat is now uh, sacrificed on the altar. And the other goat, the one that isn't uh, called to be sacrificed, has the hands of the high priest laid on its head and confess all the sins of the nation. We know this as the, the scapegoat. I think there's a, there's a picture that we can see the goat that would have it, both hands, not just one hand, but the priest would put both hands on the head of this goat and confess every sin that had built up and accumulated from the entire year of the nation. And this goat wouldn't be slaughtered on the altar, but it would sent, carrying all of the sins of the people into the wilderness to eventually die. These um, rituals, I don't know about you, but I... I there, there's a little bit of a gap for me. I, I, don't, I, I don't spend a lot of time sacrificing uh, goats and pigeons and burning incense in my quiet time. I just don't do that. Maybe I'm the only one. So there's a, there's a, big, uh, there's a big cultural jump that we need to make uh, in order to make sense of these things. But as we've been saying from the beginning, it's just having that sympathetic approach to the text. This is an entire community that is in need of reorganizing themselves, their need of repair. One goat is for the purification of the impurity and sin, a blameless life to be put in place of a sinful people, and the other goat is symbolic of sin itself. Two symbols, two goats, count as one offering. 
this ritual, this presentation is all about an entire community reorganizing themselves because they're in need of repair. But what's beautiful about this, this demonstration, this ritual, is where, do the sin, where are the sins after this? The sins are all out of the camp. They're placed on the head of the goat and sent away. Everything's been removed, a whole year's worth of sin. And this is a lot more than just guilt management, but this is an elaborate demonstration of our desperate need of God and that God, this God, isn't like all the other gods. He'll let you know exactly where you stand. There's no guessing, there's no appeasing, but it's all grace and all forgiveness. So that's a tremendous amount of work for the high priest. The high priest is the one that's uh, got to make sure that he's in, in perfect standing. So I, I learned, uh, learned recently this week, based on the purity laws, that, that before the Day of Atonement, it was said that the, the high priest wouldn't even go to sleep the day before, just in case something happened to him in the night where he would secrete some sort of uh, uh, emission or something that would make him ceremonially unclean. He couldn't risk it. So he would stay up the whole night in order to be uh, in a pure standing to go into the presence of God. So, so there's a lot of pressure on him. He could lose his life. So, so, so we understand his role, his responsibility, but what about the responsibility of the people, the children of Israel? What was, what was their role to play in all of this? And we read it here in... Um, Verse 29 of chapter 16. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or an alien living among you, because on this day, on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all of your sins. It is a Sabbath of rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance the priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments. goes on more about the, the, the ritual. But the responsibility of the people is to do nothing. The people don't have to do anything. But what they do have to do is bring Everything. All of the things that they have in their lives, the confession, they, they bring that to the priest. They submit their compulsion to do, to always having to work, to always having to produce something. But for this day, for this ritual, for the, the crux, the, the main piece of the teaching, the, the main point that uh, God is trying to get to, the people are to rest. So we can't forget that uh, these are freed slaves from Egypt. They've been taken out of Egypt, but the work that still needs to be done is that Egypt has to be removed from them. And for them to understand that, that your ability to produce bricks doesn't put you in a higher or better standing with God, but instead we put on the one that represents all of us. And that work is done for us. The center of the center of the center of God is this wild ritual that creates a thin place where humanity and the divine come together so closely. The day of at one mint. 
It means sacrifice, it means blood, it means confession of sin. And at the center of the center of the center for the people is to bring themselves, all of themselves, their sin, their impurity to God, and to rest and trust that he will take care of everything. And it's not a a gigantic leap as we prepare for... um, the most important and significant time in our calendar as the church coming close to Easter, that there's all kinds of similarities. There's all kinds of similarities that work. And all of it is pointing to Jesus. Jesus takes the role of the high priest and stands as the representative of all the people. Jesus takes the role of the innocent goat that has its blood shed for the sins of all of the people. Jesus takes the role of the scapegoat that has all of the sins placed on him as a payment or a ransom for our debt. We don't need to do anything but be. We just need to bring everything. I'm going to close uh, with this passage from, uh, from Hebrews. It's a great book, actually. As, after we've gone through uh, Leviticus, a beautiful companion to that. We talk, we're talking the, the, the symmetry and the, the balance that we see in the, in the chiasms. Hebrews is another one where it just everything just starts to come alive. But starting in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities of themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. There's an invitation for us to bring ourselves and allow that work of Jesus, who is the ultimate once and for all sacrifice, the one that brings atonement and, and closes the gap completely and permanently between God and us. There's an invitation there for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for opportunities to be invited into your presence. And God, as... Uh, as big as our challenges may seem, I think about that promise of Jubilee. Oh, Jesus, you don't know how big, how big my mortgage is. <laughs> but it pales in comparison. There isn't a situation or circumstance that's too big for you to be able to handle. Or any discretion that is um, too far gone for your blood to not cover. All we need to do simply is bring ourselves, our whole selves, 
Nothing else required. You do all of the heavy lifting and the big work. So God, I pray that you would give us the courage to be able to do that, to come to you boldly. Even if it's for the hundredth time. Thank you, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.